It is November, thir- uh, November 13th, 2005, and this is Lesson 5. Our homework will be, uh, or our discussion is going to be focusing on part of Lesson 5 and 6 since they were combined. Lesson 5 is actually the discussion. Um, and uh, we'll s- stop somewhere in the middle of it. Let's, uh, let's open in prayer. Our Father, our King, you are the Sovereign. Mighty One, Creator of all. And we thank you that you have called us into your presence through the revelation of your word. Father, we thank you that your word not only describes you and uh, how you have created us, but it describes a relationship with us, Father. We know that through Messiah Yeshua, we can come into your presence. Uh, Though we are unworthy and that we are stained with our own sins, Father, we thank you that you have washed them clean in the blood of Messiah and have made us uh, upright and uh, standing before you. And we thank you for this. According to your grace, in Yeshua's name, Amen. Let's uh, say the blessing before Torah. Baruch Adonai Hamvorach, Baruch Adonai Hamvorach, Leolam Ba'ed, Baruch Ata Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Asher Bachabanu Mikohamin, Venatan Lanu Et Torato, Baruch Ata Adonai, Noten HaTorah, Amen. Bless Adonai who is blessed. Blessed is Adonai who is blessed forever. Blessed art thou, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who chose us from all the peoples and gave to us his Torah. Blessed art thou, Adonai, giver of the Torah. Amen. A few preliminary things before we get started in, the, uh, in our discussion in chapters 1 and 2. I've zoomed it out. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he give, does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he has been made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the, holy, of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, confession, Messiah Yeshua, who is faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all of his house. And that's from Hebrews 2, 16 through 3, 2, which kind of sums up, sums up what we did in our first uh, analysis of chapters 1 and 2. Um, it says there, he does not give aid to angels. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. This issue of angels and why he starts with angels in chapters 1 and 2. Um, it's, it's somewhat uh, mysterious to some people. They think it's a question of ontology, the makeup of who Yeshua is. Who is Messiah? What is his makeup? Who, what's, his, uh, what's, his, what's his qualities? Uh, divine, angelic, human. What is it? Uh, ontology is the, is the study of uh, what makes what the makeup of someone, the nature of someone. Um, and most people read chapters 1 and 2 from an ontological point of view. This is a description of Yeshua higher than angels. And I think that sometimes when you do that, you miss maybe the more, the more uh, important point. Uh, he does make that point, but he makes even more important points. And I hope that as you went through your study, you saw some of that. Um, but one thing is this connection to angels. He starts off with this for a very important reason. And we'll get into it in a second in the lesson. But before we do that, I wanted to read you something. When Moses ascended on high, the ministering angels spoke before the Holy One. By the way, this is, this is a... This is a legend. This is not necessarily true. This is a legend, but listen to it. When Moses ascended on high, the ministering angels spoke before the Holy One, blessed be he. Sovereign of the universe, what business has one born of women women among us? He has come to receive the Torah, answered he to them. Said they to him, that secret treasure which was hidden by thee for 974 generations before the world was created, thou desirest to give it to flesh and blood? What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visiteth him? O Lord our God, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory, the Torah, upon the heavens. This is the Talmud, and as you read the Talmud, you always see this interspersed with uh, 
scriptures, like every, every sentence will have phrases of scriptures. And I want you to listen to it because it sounds an awful lot like we just, what we just studied this week. He then spake before him, Sovereign of the universe, the Torah which thou hast given me, what is written therein? I am the Lord thy God. This is Moses speaking. I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt, said he to them, that is to the angels. Did you go down to Egypt? Were you enslaved to Pharaoh? Why then should the Torah be yours? Again, what is written therein? Thou shalt have none other gods. Do ye dwell among the peoples who engage in idol worship? Again, what is written therein? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Do ye perform the work that ye need to rest? Again, what is written therein? Thou shalt not take the, uh, the name in vain. Is there any business dealings among you? Again, what is written therein? Honor thy father and thy mother. Have ye fathers and mothers? Again, what is written therein? You shall not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Is there jealousy among you? Is there either evil tempter among you? Straightway, they conceded. The angels conceded. To the Holy One, blessed be He. For it is said, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is Thy name. This legend, although it is not necessarily uh, used in chapters 1 and 2 of Hebrews, this legend uh, certainly plays a role in the understanding of the people that were hearing this, this uh, or reading this passage, because, uh, or something similar, because the connection between angels and men. And where does, where does, uh, where, what is God doing on earth with regard to men? And how do angels relate to it? Which is an important topic. Maybe not for us, but it was for the people at that time. And we'll get into why. But as you can see, just by, just by listening to it, you can hear this technical format that almost seems like, at, at times, and actually that was fairly organized, at times it just looks, it's like stream of consciousness. You know, they're jumping from verse to verse. And they're picking up words that are following to other passages, which is what we saw this week. Uh, a historical excursion in the book of Acts taught us some important things about the recipients of the epistle to the Hebrews. We don't know who wrote the book, but we do know that the writer was in the Pauline circle. How do we know that? He knew Timothy. He knew Timothy, and not only did he know Timothy, he writes to the recipients as if they know he knows Timothy. They are acquainted with him. He's acquainted with Timothy. It sounds like that he's someone who's exercising or uh, either Paul's authority or exercising authority within that Pauline circle. Correct. Um, it also taught, our study in Acts told, told us that Paul was Torah observant all the way up to the Acts chapter 28. Observant to what degree? Even beyond the degree that most people would, would consider necessary, because he says, I even kept the customs. I've never done anything against the customs of the fathers. So he's not hostile. Certainly, Paul is not hostile. We read in chapter 22, what's he doing? He's in the temple. And he's offering sacrifices to end a vow, not only for himself, but for four other men. As we saw last week, it's a, it's a huge expense. And yet he went to the effort to do it. Why did he do it? Uh, although he did not complete it, so he's probably died with very long hair. But why did he do it? Uh, he did it. He did it to uh, as a as a free will thing to prove his observance that he had not taught people against the temple system. Uh, so he wasn't hostile to the Torah. He wasn't hostile to the temple, and he wasn't hostile to the sacrifices. He was certainly not hostile to the Aaronic priesthood, who those very priests, some of them, maybe not all, but some of them were absolutely opposed to the believers, and yet he still participated in the system. So if, he's, if this person, this writer is in a Pauline circle, and obviously the things that people say this book says are not true. Either that or the book doesn't belong in Scripture. Which, obviously, I don't believe. So the book was written for a different reason. What was the reason it was written for? It's a dramatic explanation of the relationship between the seen and the unseen. Why? Why do these people need to know about the relationship between the seen and the unseen? What happened sometime around when this book was written? What had been happening? What was taking place in their community there in Jerusalem, in Judea? What was taking place? 
They were being they were being persecuted. How are they being persecuted? Just like individuals being picked out, or was there was there a systematic persecution? What was it? Probably not allowed in the temple. Yes, they were certainly not allowed in the synagogues later on as well. So, but this is a growing thing. It's not a remember. Here's one you need to remember: this. there's not a decree goes forth and says, "Hey, listen, nobody can accept these people." It's it's got, it's going to be a community by community thing. Where basically the community leaders are going to say, "No, no, we don't want you here." Okay, this is until we get up until around the around the year eighty or so, where it becomes much more organized. But about the time that this is being written, we see also that, that, that Yaakov, James, the brother of the master, is, is killed in 62 uh, in Jerusalem. And we see that this, is, this really starts a huge insurrection to the point where Josephus, uh, whether it's redacted or not, who knows, but Josephus, we know at least records that this is the principal reason why uh, Vespasian uh, comes to Jerusalem and lays siege is because of, the, is because of the, the death of James, the murder of James. So, but it's, but it's written as a, as a letter of encouragement. What the problems that we often have with this book is as we get to chapter 6 and other, other chapters, it sounds like people are like, these people are like on the verge of bolting from faith. And they need to be held back somehow with some scary words. And the scary words, especially in chapter 6, are you, you have no idea how, how, how close you are to losing it all. And, and uh, what we need to do is we need to re-examine that. These, although these are, and at the end of chapter 5 he talks about them as being uh, essentially not moving on to maturity. They need to understand something about their faith that they may not understand yet. But if they don't understand it, then maybe we don't understand it as well. Being kept from the, them being kept from maturity maybe has something far more to do than simple ritual. Or the abolishment of ritual is what some people would say. There's something that they were taught in this letter that was a need in, you know, for them to move on to maturity. Something that we can all learn from. <clears throat> the Hebraic style. Um, there's been a lot made about the Greek. We talked about the Greek of this book and how, how, how pure it is, how good it is. The Greek is very good, and it's for that reason a lot of people then say this is written from a Hellenist, telling the, telling the believers in Jerusalem, you know, just, a, you know, just, you know, you know, there's far more to, to faith than, than all that temple stuff. Just give it up. It's not worth it. Um, however, it, with, that, with, that, in, with that, that in mind, if, it's not written in a Hellenistic style. It's not written as Plato or even uh, Philo uh, from Alexandria, who's a Jewish man, who's a, a prolific writer, who, write, who has written uh, you know, uh, you know, about a generation earlier and actually up into this time has written about uh, biblical things from a Greek perspective, even though he's Jewish. Well, this book is not written like Philo's written at all. Uh, some people try and make this connection, and unfortunately, they, they have to skip whole chapters to do that. Instead, what we see, it's very technical. It's extremely technical, and we, we would... It, it just... It's a modern term. It doesn't apply back then, but it's midrashic. It's a, it's the it's the uh, and using a, a Hebraic method of of uh, like I said stream of consciousness, um, and which is what exactly what we see in chapters one and two, which makes it a very difficult, extremely difficult passage to read and get the point. What's his point? Or why bother with all this? It doesn't seem quite necessary. And that's why it's generally just treated as Christological statements. Statements about the nature of Messiah. We'll take these little statements. Well, Messiah is this, and we got that from this. Unfortunately, a lot of times they're missing the very thing that's being said because the scripture references what's being used. Um, remez is a method of recall. It's a, uh, it's, it's a method of recall where I can tell you about... Um, I can quote a part, a part of a passage, and you immediately can recall the entire passage, and then we can link it together using keywords with other passages. Uh, Remez works like this. Uh, and we, we, The most common that I like to do is a horse is a horse, of course, of course. And everybody knows we're talking about Mr. Ed. Uh, we know the whole song. We can hear the song playing in our head if you've watched the TV show. I'm old enough that I've, I've watched the TV show. TV show so. Um, but that reminds us, well, I don't have to sing the whole song for you to know what I'm talking about. All I have to do is give you the reference. And the reference is a horse is a horse. 
most of the things that we read in the apostolic scriptures that are quotes are only references. They're not the point. That's why sometimes you're reading Paul and going, what's his point? He just brings this quote in uh, you know, from, the, from the Hebrew scriptures and is like, I never would have got that from that. Well, you need to go back and you need to read what he, what he was quoting from because there wasn't chapter and verse. So he's in fact giving you the reference. Oh, by the way, go and look this up, this passage, and read this, and you'll get the whole thing. Yeshua does this a lot, all the time. It is a very common method. It's extremely rabbinic. Rabbinic is an anachronistic term. There were no rabbis at this time in the first century. That doesn't happen until after, technically until after the destruction of the temple. But it's a, it's a phrase that describes what's going on at that time, a way of thinking and a way of approaching scripture. And most people, uh, yeah, we talked about this. Is uh, uh, th- these are basically this is before chapter and verse. So, so most people read these quotes and think they've gotten the point, and all they've gotten is the scripture reference, which we're going to do far more tonight. Chapters one and two are not only a declaration of who Messiah is, and that, this is true. This is a declaration of who Messiah is. Next week we are going to go into detail about these titles that are being brought in through these references. They are they are powerful argument for the Messiahship of Yeshua. Not just a powerful argument, they are they're overwhelming evidence. They're, they're bold statements. Bold statements. But it's not just that. The author starts this way, the writer rather, starts this way for a reason. He starts this way because he's trying to lay his credentials out. He's not just making an argument about Yeshua. He's making an argument for, pay attention to what I'm telling you, this is the truth. And the reason that we know this is the method by which he does it. He starts out extremely technical. If you read this guy, or this woman, whoever it is, and, uh, um, and then you read Paul, you'll find Paul is a little easier to understand. Paul's not easy to understand in our minds. We read Paul and go, good grief, this guy's all over the place. This writer is even more all over the place. As you, if you go through your homework and you start, t- you start following every week, I'll tell you, okay, we're going we're gonna to have to skip over the high priest thing because he's still talking about something else. And we're going to have to skip over the high priest thing because he basically starts at the end of chapter, uh, at, the beginning, at the end of chapter 2 and beginning of chapter 3 and brings up the high priest. And then he spreads it out over five chapters while he moves through other topics as well. Or she. Maybe Priscilla. Who knows? So, this, this, this style. This, by the way, this is the way that this is the way the ancients did Bible study. This is exactly the way they did Bible study, where they'd sit around and they'd link these passages. They'd quote a verse, and somebody go, "Oh, that that word links to this this passage. Oh, isn't that great?" Well, as, as we know, that may not seem like a very safe way to study Scripture, but it's the way they did. We do. This is not like, uh, okay, God, give me a give me a word for the day and let the Bible flop open. It's it's you see that's easy. This this Bible study method is not easy. It may be dangerous, but it's not easy. It's very difficult, and it requires devotion on the part of the studiers. They memorized it. They, they, uh, it became a part of their language where they could pop a phrase in to a conversation and everybody would immediately pick up on what that phrase, how it related to what we, were, we are talking about. Um, we do it in our common language. Unfortunately, as believers, we really don't do it very much with, with our, our speech about Messiah. We don't do it as often as we should or as in-depth as we should. It's why it's troubling to me when we get to the end of chapter 5 and he says, you're not mature, you need to move on to maturity. Because I read these things and I think, this thing, these things that are being taught here are deep things, very deep things. So why is that they could understand it, but they are considered immature? Anyway, let's get started. Go to you got your. I want to see your. Everybody, hold up your book. Let me see what yours look like. You got colors. I got colors. Oh, very nice, very nice. Oh, excellent, excellent. Were you confused? No. Well, good, good. Oh, good job, good job. Well, we knew his would be perfect. <laughs> okay, let's start with chapter uh, chapters. Uh, 
chapter one. Actually, I'm going to go back to your appendix. Let's read from uh, let's read from our text here. God, having in the past spoken to the fathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, has at the end of these days spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He also made the worlds. Okay. In the past, God spoke to the, to the fathers through prophets. In these last days, how does he speak? Actually, he says he speaks by his son. We appointed all heirs. Now we go back to, we, we see, uh, um, in the past, God spoke through intermediaries, prophets, emissaries, apostles, those who were sent. In the last days, he's spoken through his son. Then he goes on and talks about angels. For the rest of the next two chapters. The, the, the interesting thing about this angels thing is it's a play on words. He starts off by ta- saying, in the past God spoke through prophets. In these last days he's spoken through, through, uh, through Messiah, through his son. And then he starts talking about angels. It's a play on word angels. Because angels doesn't mean only angelic beings. It means anybody sent with a message. So the prophets are angels. Malachi, our favorite, uh, our favorite Italian prophet, my angel, or my messenger, rather. Uh, Malachi means my, mes- my messenger, uh, my angel. So he's making a play on this. In other words, there's two kinds of angels being discussed in this passage. There's angels who are sent with a message, or prophets that are sent with a message, and then there's angelic beings. Both are being referenced. Well, is Yeshua being, was Yeshua sent? Sent? We read there at the end of chapter, at the beginning of chapter 3, it says he's an emissary, he was sent with a message. Well, then does he fall into that same category? No. No, he's different from that category. Because he's not the one in between speaking, he's speaking. We'll see that here in a second. Uh, The argument is established in chapter 1 and 2. It starts off by saying, okay, in the past we had an intermediary speaking to us. What God said. Most common, or at least one of the most common phrases in the Torah is, and the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, and then he goes on to say it. Says it over and over and over and over again. So who is Moses? Moses is the one speaking what God said. He's the intermediary. We hear what Moses says, we don't hear what God says. Although the people heard it at times, generally they only heard what Moses said. Well, here, we have no intermediary. In the days of prophets, they spoke. We heard what God said to the prophets. Now, he's spoken to us by his son. Well, that sounds like an intermediary, right? Now he's going to go through this technical argument and show that he's not an intermediary. That it's the very words of God. Uh, and then, and then uh, he's, he, so he, but he describes what he's talking about in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, we ought to pay att- greater attention to the things that were heard. What were the things that were heard? He's speaking about those things that he were heard about Messiah. Lest perhaps we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels, through messengers, proves steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, how will we escape if we neglect the so great a salvation, which at the first has been spoken through the Lord, and was confirmed about, to us by those who heard? No longer an intermediary. Then going to uh, then in chapter three, verses one and two, which we started uh, started the uh, discussion tonight in, where we talk about where he gives us the you know the one-two punch. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider the apostle and Kohen Gadol, high priest of our confession, Yeshua, who is faithful to him who appointed him, as also was Moshe Moses in all his house. <laughs> So we see that this, he's, he's got this argument kind of in, in a couple of verses. There you go. Okay, let's move on. We don't have to do all the rest of the stuff. So what's he give us all this stuff in between for? Because just like every good Bible student, he's never just going to make a statement out of, out of thin air. He's going to prove it to us. Right? He's never going to say, by the way, I have this special revelation from God. And after all, I'm in the Bible. Pay attention to me. No. He says, I cannot say things on my own. I need to have proof for what I say. And the only proof for what I say is found in the books that precede Matthew 1.1. So let's go there, is what he says. Let's go there. I'm going to show you these things that I'm going to teach you about Messiah are there. And they're obvious. Well, they were obvious to us when we looked it up, right? Okay, let's connect the dots. Chapters 1, 
Verses 4 and 5. And he talks, in verse 3, he talks about Messiah and, 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 and essentially his very image is the substance, uh, substance of God. He sat down with the majesty on high. Verse 4. Having become so much better than the angels, as he inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he say at any time, You are my son, today I have become your father. And again, I will be a father to him, and he will be to me a son. So that's the first cross-reference. It comes from Psalm 2. Okay? So we have a link. Here's, here's what he does. He goes to his... He's, he's, he's making his argument, and he brings a scripture in from the Tanakh, usually from... Most of them come from the Psalms, but there's some from Second uh, Samuel, Deuteronomy, and, and Isaiah. And then once he gets in that passage, there's other words in there that just intrigue him, that he has to draw upon, which links him to another passage, which then he quotes in Hebrews. But the key words are what link them, between them. In other words, the two passages, or three passages, or sometimes four passages, found in the Tanakh, in the Hebrew Scriptures, were linked by a common word, the first passage that he brought up. And here, here, Psalms 2 reads this way. Why did the nations rage? By the way, this is, uh, Psalms 2 was, um, this, no, this is, this is, uh, yeah, this is the Masoretic text. Why did the nations rage and the people's, and the people plot, inve- in, plot a vain thing? The king of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, I don't know why translators are, are, so insistent upon doing this kind of stuff. But the word in, in, in Hebrew is against his Mashiach. Why did they just say against his Messiah? In the Septuagint it says against his Christos. It's, it's, it's against his Christ. So it's talking about Messiah. It's not talking about, well, whoever the anointed one might be. It's talking about a person. We know who he is. So this is a messianic psalm. This is a psalm about Messiah. Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress, distress them in all his deep displeasure. Yet I, will, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Now this is the quote he makes in Hebrews 1, 4-5. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, be wise, O king. Kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. We just learned a whole lot about Messiah right there. Bam. Well, maybe you already knew these things. But he's making a point. He's saying, you remember that passage in Psalm 2, which he quotes by saying, you are my son. To which of the angels did he say, you are my son? In other words, is there a psalm about the angels inheriting a throne or having a scepter now our, our, uh, our writer here pulls this phrase you are my son and immediately thinks you know that's that great that's great that gets me thinking about another place and then he starts quoting from, from 2 Samuel 7 the link is the word son listen when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers I will set up your seed after you this is this is God speaking in the Davidic covenant to David I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body I will establish his kingdom I, sh- I shall build a house for my name and will establish the throne of his kingdom forever I will be his father and he will be my son well it's talking about Solomon specifically but our writer and Hebrews is saying, no, no, the son thing, isn't that great? That's the same phrase that I got from, uh, from the Messianic Psalm, Psalms 2. So this is, this is so I'm, I'm pulling, he's pulling 2 Samuel 7 and he goes, this applies to Messiah too. Because it uses the same phrase, my son. Okay? He's got this father-son relationship he wants to, he wants to go into. Okay? And that's how those first two, that's where he gets those two, first two verses together. That's how he gets them together. He gets them together by... Going to Psalms 2 
and then kind of stream of consciousness remembering these key words going oh I remember there's a really great psalm talks about psalm uh, or Second uh, Samuel talks about a son oh this is the Davidic covenant this is a good one and he brings that in uh, then he goes uh, excuse me then he goes to verse <clears throat> verse uh, 6 again when he brings in the firstborn into the world he says let all the angels of God worship him and she says what, 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 where he got this was from where this came from is he's not really talking about angels so much as he, he gets the same keyword sons he goes ooh I know another great place that talks about son or sons and he, and he remembers it's, it's in Deuteronomy 32.43 and we have a problem when we read this because it's in the Septuagint and if you look this up in, the, in your King James Bible or in your New American Standard this verse is much much shorter and in fact the reference to angels isn't even there we have two options in this, in this regard. One option is to say, well, just like Paul quotes from Greek poets and, uh, and Jude quotes from the book of First Enoch, he quotes and, and uh, what he quotes is true from the Septuagint. Even though it was a transli- translation, he quotes from the Septuagint. It was true, so it's, it's fine. Another option is, and this, and this is where I, 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 I tend not to like the first, I, I tend to go with the second, and that is that this, this version of Deuteronomy 32.43 that's found in the Septuagint is actually probably more close to the original. And there are actually Hebrew scrolls found in Dead Sea Scrolls that contain this verse written as it is written here in, in, in the Septuagint, even though it's not found in the Masoretic text, which is what our, most of our Bibles are made up of. Anyway, he pulls the word sons or son from Deuteronomy 32 to draw us in in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 6. Rejoice you heavens with him and let all the angels of God worship him. Rejoice you Gentiles and his people and let all the sons of God strengthen themselves in him. For he will avenge the blood of his sons and will render vengeance and recompense justice to his enemies and reward them that hate him and the Lord shall purge the land of his people. Well, how does he get sons from son in Second Samuel? Second Samuel says he talks about having a house. You are my son. Where does he come up with what? What, what takes him to Deuteronomy thirty-two and to talk about sons of God? This is the son of God in the first two passages, right? Go back to Second Samuel seven twelve through fourteen a. He's talking about he's talking about Solomon here. He says he shall build a house. For my name. What house did Solomon build? The temple. Habait. Yeah. The house. Habait. The house. That's actually how you say the temple in Hebrew. Habait. If you look on a Hebrew map, it doesn't say the temple mount. It says Har Habait. The mount of the house. Yeah. Yeah. Bape. Yeah. Or the letter like the letter bait is bait. Yeah. Like a box. Yeah. It's a house. So it's a... This is a prophecy about Solomon building the temple. But our writer, and actually he's not alone, but our writer goes, no, no, there's another meaning for house. What's another meaning for house? Family. A family. Yeah. A family. He's saying, I'm going to build a family. This, this person speaking of this seed in Second Samuel 7 is going to have a family for the name of God. A family. So that's what reminds our writer of Deuteronomy 32.43. Sons. Son becomes sons. He has siblings. He's not just the son. He has brothers and sisters. Then he goes to verse 7. Of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels winds and his servants flames of fire? From that he comes he comes over to Psalm 104. Okay, here's he's talking about angels and talking about servants of flame of fire. So he, so in Psalms 104 it says, "Blessed, bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty. Who clothe yourself with light as with a garment? Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain? He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot." Who walks on the winds of the wind, wings of the wind? Who makes his angels, his ministers, a flame of fire? 
So he, so he has a, a couple key words that draw him into, new, in, into, into the next passage, which is found in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. But of the Son, he says, Your king, O God, is forever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. He's actually gone back to the first cross-reference from, from Psalm 2. And he's gone back and he said, You know, kind of finished with the father-son thing and siblings. I'll come back to that. Let's look at this thread. This is a thread talking about the scepter, the throne of God. And where is he quoting from that? Page 39. Psalms 45. He's, he's quoting from Psalms uh, 45 where it says, Your throne, O God, is forever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You, have, you love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Now, again, our writer, the Hebrew speaker that he is, is just intrigued, loves that word anointed. Because he goes, anytime I find the word anointed, I'm just looking for Messiah. And that's exactly what he does. So he's saying, Psalm 45 is about Messiah. And then what does it say? It says, your throne, O God, is forever a scepter. Go back to 2 Samuel 7 on page 38. What does it say? I will establish the throne of his kingdom, whoever he's speaking of, the seed, forever. He's made this connection between, between the throne of God now and this promise in the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7. And another key word that he brings in is scepter. Which takes him back to Second Psalms two six through nine and Second Samuel seven through thirteen. Uh, seven thirteen. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, "You are my son today. I have begotten you. Ask of me. I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel." We have this uh, Acts of Creation, Psalms 104. Uh, Psalms 104, did we do Psalms 104 yet? Yeah. And then also, uh, this connects to 2 Samuel, we read, he shall, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Whose throne is this? It's God's throne. But he's promising it to David and to his son, Solomon. We never read. To be fair, we don't read 2 Samuel 12, 14, 12 through 14, anything, 2 Samuel 7. We generally don't read it as applying to Solomon. That's what it applies to. But we know it applies to someone else even more. That it's a messianic promise. We're not alone. Everybody sees this. But the reason why we know that is because we know what we know about Messiah. And remember, this, the writer is, is giving them proof texts. They already know this truth. But you got some stuff to wrap it around here. Oh yeah, Psalms, uh, 2 Samuel 7, that's speaking of our Master. Whose scepter? Whose rod of iron is it? It's God's. How long is it good for? <coughs> Let's leave that for a second. Go to chapter uh, 1, verse 10. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hand. They will perish, but you will continue. But you continue. They all will grow old like garments does. As a mantle, you will roll them up. They will be changed, but you are the same. Your years will not fail. Now, wait a minute. Everything is going to be taken away. He just promised David that his throne would be for how long? Forever. How long is forever? He says everything's going to change. He says that the heavens will be will be will perish. They will grow old like a garment. As a mantle, you roll them up. But you are the same. You, your years will not fail. 
Whose throne is this again? It's just God's throne. It can't be only David's throne. It can't be the house of David, the family of David alone. We know the mystery of Messiah is that it's the house of David, literally, and it's God's throne. How? Because Messiah came as a man. God in human form, representing both David and the Almighty. In the same throne. Whose throne is it? It's not a separate throne. It's not the throne of the Lamb and of the Father. It's the throne. He's got a throne that goes on forever. Everything else will change. He doesn't change. Everything else will will be destroyed. He won't be destroyed. His throne is forever. So it's more than just... Second, basically he's made the case for Second Samuel 7 is not just talking about Solomon we know it isn't because when we get to we get to verse 15 it's speaking specifically about Solomon's sin so we know it's talking about Solomon there but we know it's not just talking about Solomon that it's talking about Messiah and the promises that he has a house then he goes uh, he also links it to Deuteronomy 32 again Deuteronomy 32 is an interesting passage because it speaks of the sons of God's being strengthened and him avenging the blood of his sons and rendering vengeance, recompensing justice to his enemies and rewarding them that hate him. It talks about him defending his, and I'm going to use it, he doesn't say it is, but his siblings. Okay? His house. And he goes to Psalms 102. Uh, from uh, from uh, says your years will not fail at the end of uh, chapter uh, 1 verse 12 your years will not fail takes us to Psalms 102 Psalms 102 25 through 28 Psalms 102 is a prayer of the afflicted man that's what its title is in Hebrew the prayer of the afflicted man who is the afflicted man well David thought he was the afflicted man or whoever wrote the psalm who is the afflicted man we believe in Messiah who is the afflicted man Man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Well, everybody back then understood the same thing. When you talk about the afflicted man, you're talking about, well, it's our master. He was crucified here in this very city. You know, he was three days dead and rose again, but he was afflicted, absolutely. All of our sins were, were, were carried by him. He was, we saw him suffer and die. Even, maybe some of us even shouted that he should be crucified before we came to faith. He's the afflicted man. Man, you, you talk about Psalms 102. It's like, wow, man, of course we're talking about Messiah here. And that's exactly what he does. And what does he say? He says, you are the, of old you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same. Your years have no end. The children of your servants will continue and their descendants will be established before you. Who's the children of your servants? He's drawing back, he's drawing back into Deuteronomy 32.43 again. The sons of God. Who are these? Who are these children? Who's the afflicted man? So who are, the, who are who are his children, his siblings as well? Yeah, his yeah, his his uh, believers absolutely. Well, is this good news? It's good news to me. The children of your servants will continue. Now, if I had just seen the head of my congregation thrown from the pinnacle of the temple and then beat with a fuller's brush until he was dead, this would be very good news for me. Right? It says, your children, the, the children of your servant. And it says servants, but imagine this. The children of your servant, your, his siblings, they'll continue forever. Or they'll continue, rather. Their descendants will be established before you. Established. What's established mean? You, you, ever, you, ever, you ever see something that, 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 like a stone that I always wanted to fall over? You know? Try and stand a stone up and it's not shaped right. It, won't, it doesn't have a good foundation to fall over. To be established is to be set so that it will not tip over. 
Well, we're we're talking about we're talking about being thrown out of congregations, but being thrown out of the temple itself to be established would be a good thing to hear. You'll be established. You won't be without a home. Go to verse uh, thirteen and fourteen. No, excuse me. Go back to verse eleven. Let's skip verse eleven. I didn't skip that. I didn't. I didn't. Okay, that verse thirteen and fourteen. But to which of his angels has he told at any time, "Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies the footstool of footstool of your feet"? Aren't they all serving spirits sent out to do the service of the sake of those who inherit salvation? Remember our little legend. You know. The Torah wasn't made for angels. Nah, they, they can't sin. Well, they had sinned once, but that's it. God's servants—they don't need—they don't need instructions in righteousness. So the Torah wasn't made for them. What was it made for? It's made for men. God's word was made for men. So who are the angels? They're there to minister to the men that, in fact, have are inheriting salvation. Okay, now this is the big one, 13 and 14. Connects to, and he's quoting from Psalms 110, right? Yes. Lost my place. There we go. Psalms 110, I'll read the whole thing. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord will send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your, of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. If that's a common phrase. It's because it's quoted twice in this book, Hebrews. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall, fi- he shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink up the brook of the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. Psalms 110 is a messianic psalm. In fact, it's quoted more than any other psalm in the apostolic scriptures. It's quoted repeatedly in this book. This is only the first reference to it. But look where he, he brings up this throne from Psalms 45 and footstool and brings them together he links Psalms 45 again he's taking us back to this he can't, he can't get off this idea Messiah is a king he's not just a king though who's going to rule having established having a kingdom given to him in peace he is a conquering king and that's the repeated thing Starting in Deuteronomy 32, the repeated thing we keep coming back to, he's a conquering king. Actually, in Psalm 2, he's a conquering He's not just a king, he's the conquering king. Why is that good news for someone who's just been thrown out of the temple? Or being thrown out of the temple? He's a conquering king. Listen, you have a defender. And he's a judge. He's talking about the kingship, the priesthood, and the judgeship of Messiah. All in one passage, Psalms 110 is a powerfully messianic psalm. We're going to look at it in depth a little bit uh, next week. And how Yeshua himself uses this very passage to claim his identity. And in fact, in using this passage, he says it in, in, in clearer, clearer terms than, we, than he could have just come out and said it in our minds clearer terms to the people who were there they understood exactly what he was saying when he quoted from the psalm and we'll see why and the way that he did it was in fact a way that was more powerful than any other way he could have done it they're, they're, uh, uh, in, in the week just before his crucifixion uh, Hebrews 2, 6-8 he goes back he, he reminds us why he's doing all this in chapter 2 at the beginning Talk about listen. The, the word spoken through angels proved steadfast. The Torah was steadfast; it didn't change. Uh, every transgression was was dealt with. Well, if that's true, how much more will the one who speaks not through Moses but speaks himself? How much more will if you disregard this salvation that's offered to you? How much more will you be? Um, how much more dangerous is it? And then verse uh, 6 or 8. Uh, chapter 2, verse 6 or 8. But one has 
one has somewhere testified saying does he not know where it was what is man that you think of him the son of man that that you care for him you made him a little lower than the angels you crowned him with glory and honor you have put all things and subjected them to his feet he's bringing up that feet thing again for in that he did subject all things to him he left nothing that is not subject to him but now we don't see all things subject to him subjected to him yet but we see him who has been made a little lower than the angels Yeshua because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor that the grace of God he should taste death for everyone I went too far Uh, I keep losing my place in this uh, in the middle of page 40 uh, but what has what, what, has someone somewhere testified saying what is man that thou think of him or the son of man that you care for him you have made him a little lower than angels you crowned him with glory and honor you have put all things subject under his feet which takes us to Psalm 8 Psalms 8 4 through 6 says what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him does that son of man mean anything specifically it just means human being Ben Adam, just this human being. It's nothing, it's nothing special in and of itself, as it's read in Psalms 8. But our writer in the book of Hebrews is going to make that a very important phrase. You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all, put all things under his feet. Here's Messiah who was above angels, now has been made lower than angels. And how, how has he been made lower? Remember, up until this point, he's been talking about he's king, he's judge, he's messiah, he's, he's the ruler. He's going to vanquish all the enemies. Now what does he do? Is He turns around, he goes back and he says, he's above angels, obviously. Now it's more than that. Well, no, he was made a little lower than angels. And how was he made a little lower than angels? He's made man. But see, he's, he's drawing us back to that, that second Samuel thing about having a house from a man named David, from your own body, as he promised Abraham. One of your own descendants. The impossible. The things that no one would ever consider. God does the impossible. It's how he does things. No one would ever consider that God's going to fulfill his promises. His promise of a deliverer. By coming himself. <laughs> no, one, no one imagines that. God's too removed. He's too distant. God's too infinite. Even when he's close, he consumes us. What hope can we have if we don't have a redeemer? Who's like us, which is what we're getting to. He's put all things under his feet. From that he goes back. Look at that goes in, back up to Hebrews chapter uh, uh, from cha- Hebrews chapter two verse six. That's what takes us. Uh, oh, excuse me. I, I, I'm getting ahead of myself here. I'm getting excited. Under his feet goes back to Psalms one ten as well. Your your footstool. Your footstool. Then he goes to verse twelve, chapter two verse twelve. Where it says, "Saying, I will declare." Your name to my brother, brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And what is he quoting there? He's quoting from Psalms 22, where it says, verses 22 through 25, I will declare your name to my brethren. That reminds him of something, right? He's already quoted it. Oh, yeah. That's, we've been talking about sons. We've been talking about a house. He keeps going back to Second Samuel 7. We've been, we're talking about a house, a family. So he he's, he's brings it in again. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All your, you descendants of Jacob, glorify him. That takes us back to Deuteronomy 32 as well. Sons of God. And all you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Wow, man, that sounds just like the Psalms 102 where it talks about the, the Psalm of the afflicted man. Right? Nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard, My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. This is great news. He hears, not only of the afflicted man, but the brethren who are afflicted as well. He knows what's going on. He was afflicted. He didn't open his mouth. But he knows what's happening. He will defend his brothers. Verse 13, uh, 13 and 16. 
Hebrews 2, 13, 16. Again, I will put my trust in him. Again, behold, I am here with the children whom God had given me. You know, when you read this just outright, it is really kind of, man, what's the point? He keeps, again, again, and takes these little snippets, these little cross-references, and if you have a Bible that puts it in a different font, you're like, I mean, it's like jumping all over the place. But it's that constant theme. All those same words keep coming back. Not necessarily the words that are being quoted, but the key words in those passages keep coming back. He's making a case. And when he, when he says, I will put my trust in him, he's being drawn to uh, Psalms 2, 12 again. Back to Psalms 2. All the way back in the beginning. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. And he's also drawing from Isaiah 8, 17 through 18 from the Septuagint. And one shall say, I will wait for God who has turned his face from the house of Jacob and I will trust in him. Behold, I and the children which God has given me and they shall be for signs and wonders in the house of Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. Wow, he's coming to his point. He's coming to his point here. He says, I will trust him. Who are you going to trust in? Messiah is saying, here I am. I have brought my children with me. I have brought my brethren with me. The house that you've given to me. Yes, in fact. In fact, he has turned his face away from Jacob. It seems like there is no hope for us. And yet, he's going to use these very ones who are afflicted as a sign and a wonder in the house of Israel. And then, and then he, in the next passage, in verse 16, he brings up, for most certainly he does not give help to angels, which takes us back to our legend about angels who don't need the Torah, right? But he gives help to those, to the seed of Abraham, which comes from Psalms, or excuse me, from Isaiah 41, where it says, But thou, Israel, art my servant Jacob, art my servant Jacob and he whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, whom I have loved, whom I have taken hold of, of all the, from the ends of the earth and from the high place, places of it, I have called thee and I said to thee, Thou art my servant, I have chosen thee and I have not forsaken thee. Fear not, for I am with thee. Wander not, for I am thy God who has, a, who has strengthened thee. That takes us back to... Isaiah 30, or excuse me, Deuteronomy 32 again. Strengthened. Strengthened thee, and I have helped thee, and I have established thee. Which takes us back to Psalms 102, the prayer for the afflicted man. With my just right hand. And then he finishes here with Psalms 41, talking about the seed of Abraham again, which takes us really back to Psalm, uh, 2 Samuel 7 again. He shall build a house, a family for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. What did he say? It's an encouragement to us to read these words. What do you think it was to them who are being persecuted because of their faith? Who were having to weigh the commands of God? What was it like in the year 62 at Passover? Where they had a command from the Master. Do this in remembrance of me. How are you going to do it? They won't let you in. We, we celebrate Passover now without having a lamb. Because there's no temple. They had no such permission. We, we really don't celebrate Passover the way that it was commanded. We do the best we can. We can't do it the way we're told to. How did, how did they get, grapple with that? What? What hope we were told by the master himself. You should have told us that we were supposed to do this and remember, and we can't. What are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to be secret believers? Maybe we maybe we just need to just you know tone it down and and go along with things because after all we need to be obedient to God. He's commanded us. 
to participate in these things. I mean, we, we live here in Jerusalem. There's three festivals. There's no excuse for us not to go up to the temple, except that we can't go in because we're believers in the Master. We want to pray. We can't go to houses of prayer, synagogues. Some let us in, some don't. What's, how, did the, how did the people in that day read these words? What was he, what was he telling them? Did they need to look to angels for help? Did they, did they have a message that, that was transient or one transient or one that was fixed? No, he's saying that Yeshua fulfilled everything. He was going to be there. That's right. And the message was not it wasn't a changing message, and it was no longer a message to a mediator. I mean, he is a mediator. But he's more than a mediator. The words that he spoke were his own words. They were the words he says. I speak nothing but that the Father gives me. But he's claiming something more than just simply a mediator here. We're going to look at the titles next week. But there's something far more than just a mediator here. Far more. There's something far more than simply an offspring of God. Because that's not the phrase that's used. He is not merely a super angel. He is. And he's making a powerful case that don't worry. I know exactly where you are. And I know exactly what you're going through. I was afflicted. I know that you were afflicted as well. Real quickly, go to the end of chapter, or the beginning of chapter. The end of chapter 2. Therefore, he was obligated in all things to be made like his brothers. This is verse 17. That he might become a merciful and faithful Kohen Gadol, high priest, in things pertaining to God, to make atonement for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. You see, we read that out of context, oh, if I get tempted. These are people who are being tempted in ways we have not dealt with, I don't think. This is a, this is a severe temptation. It's a testing of, of everything. The very core of who you are is being tested here. Not to sin, necessarily, but just in, just in persecution and affliction. And what did he say? He's made him a high priest. He begins his high priest thing in chapter, chapter 2, verse 17, and he doesn't drop it until he gets to the end of chapter 10. I mean, he, he kind of goes in and out with it. He comes back and forth with it. But it's where he starts this whole past, this whole, you know, six chapters, seven chapters here that he's going to keep drawing back to this point. So he's set the stage for us. He knows where you are. He knows exactly what you've gone through and what you're going through. He is keeping a record. He knows. He will, in fact. He must establish his kingdom. He must sit upon his throne. He must make recompense. Those who afflict you will not be able to afflict you without fear of judgment. They will be judged. You have a priest. You can't go into the temple and offer the sacrifices. You can't, maybe you can't go in on Passover. You still have a high priest. This is good news. This is a word of encouragement. It's a powerful word of encouragement for those people. We should take it as well as a word of encouragement. Uh, because even though we may not have suffered as they have suffered, we, we do understand being separated from people. We do understand having issues of fellowship with people. We do understand how people withdraw from us. He knows this. And he knows that fellowship with each other is important. But he's trying to encourage us that fellowship with him is more important. It's the pinnacle. It's the, it's the point. Anyway. That's a lot to go through. He 
takes excursions, and he does it like Paul. When we read Paul, and we go, wow, man, he's like all over the place. He, does, he is. He is all over the place. Romans is very organized, it seems, until you sit down, and it's like, wow, man. You know, and that's the most organized of the books that Paul wrote. Um, what, what we know is that's not necessarily Pauline style. It's Hebraic style, which is why people, some people thought Paul wrote Hebrews. is because, wow, man, he's like he's all over the place. <laughs> And he actually does a pretty good job for seven chapters coming back to the temple system, at least as, 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 as a picture. So he, he does do that. But it is, he is all over the place. And the details in this passage, uh, next week what we're going to do is we're going to sum up, uh, try and look at it, using what we've learned about the writer's main point in these two chapters, but also then to sum up some of these titles from Messiah. Uh, it'll, be a, it'll be a really profitable time to spend time. And I know there doesn't seem like a lot of a lot of homework left for lesson six. But if you would, and I did not include this, I don't think, but if you would include uh, through verse six, chapter three, verse six, include through chapter three, verse six, in your analyzing of titles and statements about who Messiah is. Okay? And I, I don't think I told you to do that, and that was my error. Any final comments before we close? Questions? Yeah, I just said chapters 1 and 2. So up through 3, verse 6. Oh, thank you very much. For the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard? That's from our Hebrews 2, 2 through 3. And it's like, well, you know, that's all he had to say. Why did he go through all that trouble? Why did he go through all that trouble? That's the way we do Bible study. That's the way we do it. Look how much we learn. (laughs) All right, let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the things that Messiah has done for us. We are blessed with uh, the knowledge, uh, the, the mere recounting of what he has done and how you are inclined towards us and how your heart is towards us, Father, and how we have, uh, we have pleased you uh, because Messiah has claimed us as his. Lord, when we recount this and when we go through it, uh, we, are, we are blessed. But, Father, we know that the real blessing is what has actually been done. And we, we imagine and we, and, and we read and we, and we have senses and feelings. But, Father, the reality of it, it has not even been uh, uh, visited to us. We don't even yet know all that you have done for us. We have not yet experienced all the things that you have, uh, that you have accomplished and finished. And Father, our experience is, is clouded by our own humanity and by our own uh, blindness and our own callousness at times. But Father, we know that we have these glimpses and we thank you for these glimpses of who you are and what you've done for us. And we bless your name for you are a great and mighty God. And we thank you for the gift of Messiah and for a relationship with you, we pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Let's... Uh, close with the uh, and bless the Lord for this uh, Torah study Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Natanlanu Torah Temet Vechai Olam Natabet Ochenu Baruch Atah Adonai Noten HaTorah Amen Blessed art thou Adonai our God King of the universe who gave to us the Torah of truth and planted eternal life in our midst Blessed art thou, Adonai, giver of the Torah. Amen.